Intel is the spark for the dreamers who do. They dream of a life with no diseases, of cleaner, greener, more reliable energy, of advancing and expanding education by bringing AI everywhere. Intel is the spark to start something new, to know that no dream is too daring when you have the right foundation. It starts with Intel. Learn more at intel.com slash starts. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. My guest today is Katie Couric. She spent more than a decade on the Today Show greeting Americans on weekday mornings. A new rock group called Hanson is making teenage hearts beat a little faster these days. Three brothers from Tulsa, Oklahoma, Isaac, Zach, and Taylor are here. They're part of the group Hanson. In 2006, she made history as the nation's first solo female nightly news anchor on a major network. This is the CBS Evening News with Katie Couric. Hi, everyone. I'm very happy to be with you tonight. These days, she has a new book out. It's a memoir that details her own rise, the seemingly zero-sum game she found herself in with other female news anchors, and, of course, her relationship with her Today Show co-anchor, Matt Lauer, who, you may recall, was fired in 2017 after multiple allegations of sexual misconduct. The book also exposes Couric to some critiques. In particular, she's drawn heat for editing her 2016 interview with Ruth Bader Ginsburg in an effort to protect the late Supreme Court justice. So I wanted to ask Couric about her career, her regrets, and why in the world she decided to write such a controversial book. Katie Couric, welcome to Sway. Thank you, Kara Swisher. So I want to start with the reaction to this book. The memoir is called Going There. It's been making a ton of headlines every day. And everyone seems to have a copy and it's commenting on it. I, no, I don't think everyone does, actually. I think they're just commenting on the comments. Right. So you've taken the idea of writing a tell-all pretty far. There's stuff in here about your slave-owning ancestry, your depression, your bulimia. There's also harsh criticism of TV broadcasting A-listers, even admissions about your own editorial mistakes. So talk about why you did it this way and what what was the impetus for doing that? Yeah, you know, I just, I never thought of telling my story any other way. I mean, what's the point of writing a book that's just like your greatest hits or a victory lap or a sanitized version of your life? I thought that was sort of a waste of time and not particularly useful. So I even feel uncomfortable with the tell-all because I think that connotes, Kara, like this certain salacious quality that actually I don't think is in the book. I think it's been willfully misrepresented. You know, for every funny kind of cheeky or wry observation I make, there are 11 positive observations I make uh, about someone. Uh, And so I think there has been this kind of weird narrative really based in sort of this tabloid clickbait mentality that does not represent the book at all. I mean, what do these people want? Do they want like this My Little Pony book? I don't quite understand. These are my life experiences. I'm telling them as they happened and as I perceived them from my point of view, clearly, And uh, So tell me why you think that is. Were you surprised by the reaction? I'm not that surprised because I'm not naive about how the culture has changed and sort of the 
environment we're in, you know, would I have preferred to have someone who actually read the whole book who could give a fuller perspective on it? Yeah, of course. But, you know, and the other thing I, someone in publishing told me, good reviews don't sell books. I thought that was such a sad statement about where we are as a culture. Good reviews don't sell books. Like, that's sort of sick. But, you know, I think it is what it is. I really love my book. I'm proud of my book. Um, It's really honest. It's very self-critical. As Frank Rich wrote me, I'm so happy you didn't write some unctuous BS. Like, what is the point? Right, what is the point? All right, so you're getting some heat for not being as generous as you could be with your female colleagues, although you're stating you weren't. But my perspective is that these questions are fair to ask, but the rush to judgment is not particularly fair. Nobody really goes after, say, Chris Cuomo asking if he's mentoring Don Lemon, et cetera, or things like that. And- I even write about that. Mm-hmm. I write about that. I write about, you know, the fact that I like all these people, but it's a competitive industry. You know, I write about George Stephanopoulos and David Muir having a real come to Jesus uh, about who got to anchor special reports, so much so that Bob Iger had to fly into New York to broker, you know, some kind of agreement. Um, but that's sort of a one-day story. And and these kind of, you know, very deep-seated, implicit biases that we all, I think, have, we just, I think, regress and fall back on these sexist tropes. And, you know, it's funny, I guess— I guess I thought I could talk honestly about that because I always feel like things have changed. And then I wonder, have they really? So I do think, I hate to say it because it sounds so hackneyed, but there continues to be this very intense double standard when it comes to judging men versus women. Versus women. Well, one of the things, I'm going to quote back to you. You write, uh, have you ever considered maybe not everyone is going to like you? Yeah. When you were writing this, did you worry about that idea? Um. Not really. That wasn't my prevailing sentiment. It was really to speak my truth, to talk about something from my point of view. So I wasn't like, oh, is this person going to be mad at me? Um, and and honestly, I think the people who might be mad at me are people who deserve to be called out for their behavior like the Jeff Fagers of the world, you know? Um, right. Like the Les Moonveses of the world. I find it fascinating that that stuff hasn't been picked up, really. Um, mm-hmm. You called Les Moonves a close talker with bad breath. Uh, <laughs> having having experienced that, I would agree. I would say that is accurate. <laughs> I think Howard Stern said he no- never noticed that. And I wanted to say, because you're too tall, Howard. Right, right. That's true. <laughs> Fair point. All right. But let, let's talk about the, where the, the focus really has been, which is other female news correspondence, either anchors or other things. Um, you spent some time dissecting your rivalry with Diane Sawyer, which I think is normal because it really was quite a rivalry. You write uh, that her voice was, quote, full of money. Um, you were once fierce rivals. That was a great Gatsby quote. Yeah, great Gatsby quote. That's right, exactly, for Daisy Buchanan. Um, she was anchoring Good Morning America. You were doing the Today Show. Talk about that rivalry and the reaction to you talking about it. Quote, it got back to uh, that on the set of Good Morning America. She always has an eye on the monitor tuned to our show. Apparently one day while watching me, she said to no one in particular, that woman must be stopped. Yeah, I thought that was so funny. Honestly, I kind of wrote about that whole thing in a way that it was so ridiculous. And um, I actually wrote incredibly nice things about Diane, how much I admired her, how I really, you know, watched her when she was the State Department correspondent covering things on 60 Minutes. Um, 
I think that I'm very tongue-in-cheek in a lot of this stuff. And as I said, sort of more wry observations than snarkiness and just laughing at the whole situation. So, um, yeah, I think that it was just a very funny moment in time when these big gets, there were, you know, all these women, Barbara Walters, Diane, Connie. Mm-hmm. It's Connie Chung. Jane Pauly to a, yeah, Connie Chung, Jane Pauly to a lesser extent, just how how ferocious it was to get these interviews and the links that people went to to get them. Um, for that moment in time, it was just nutty and funny. And I'm kind of making fun of the whole thing. Right. Now, another one was the rivalry explorer with Deborah Norville, who you replaced as co-anchor on the Today Show. You write about her, quote, relentless perfection and her lack of rapport with Brian Gumbel. Um, did you have a contentious relationship with her? Not at all. Uh, in fact, um, if you also read, I say she was thrust into the home wrecker narrative through no fault of her own. Between her and Jane Pauley. Exactly, exactly. I think basically it was the bonehead decisions of the males in charge that put her in this position. I talk about how smart she was and how awful this must have been for her. It was a decision that was made. It was handled clumsily that it was about pushing Jane out because she was 39 and they wanted someone who appealed to younger demos. But um, I see really nice things about Deborah too. But somehow, again, like good reviews don't sell books, nice comments don't get clicks. Right. Now, she said she was stunned by and hurt by your comments. Has she reached out to you or vice versa? No, but I've actually am am sending a book to her and telling her that I've always admired her Mm -hmm. graciousness. So read it. um, Read it, Deborah, before you. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. But I was sad because I didn't, I don't want her to feel that way. Yeah. Another one was Ashley Banfield. Um, You wrote in your book, which I thought was quite a sentence for a minute there, Ashley Banfield was the next big thing I'd heard through the grapevine. Her father was telling anyone who listened that she was going to replace me in that environment. Mentorship seemed like self-sabotage. That's a really important thing to admit to yourself, mm-hmm. um, that you you don't want to help someone because the way they have set it up, it is sort of, you know, woman-on-woman pro-wrestling, essentially. Well, you know, again, I think that's kind of a testament how honest I am and how self-critical I am in the book. You know, I think I start that paragraph by saying, I wonder about my part in all of this. And the fact that at times, I think when an executive is looking at someone, this isn't Ashley, but because of her bee stung lips and the way she would potentially look in a flak jacket covering a war. And I think, you know, somebody getting pushed out for a younger model. I don't want people to think this was like a defining attitude that I carried with me all the time. But there were times when I think I was insecure and protective of my job. Banfield did respond to the passage from the book. Let's play a clip from her. There's so much that I learned from Katie Couric. And I'll be honest with you, it saddens me that we couldn't collaborate. It saddens me that she didn't want to mentor me. I wasn't that much younger than Katie, quite frankly. I think we could have had a really good working relationship together. I I wished I'd had that. Um, And quite frankly, I think of mentoring women in this business as one of the best investments. It's not just TV. It's in everything. When you hear that, what do you say to yourself as a younger person? What would you would wish you had done? I mean, I think that if probably women, if there had been more positions and women hadn't been almost pitted against each other, 
You know, that's really flattering. I'm glad that she thinks that. And, um, you know, she never reached out to me. I probably should have taken it my, upon myself to reach out to her. But I think when you hear someone openly saying they're going to replace you, that's hard. Did Ashley Venfield actually say she was going to replace you? No. No, it was her dad. <laughs> it was like several people saying her dad uh, was walking around telling people that. Or And I guess, I don't know. What what did you think it would cost you at the time to mentor them, even if they were saying, I'm going to replace Katie Couric? And even if the there was scarcity, I think a lot of these executives above you play on the idea of scarcity. Yes, I think so, too. And I think like to make people feel insecure in a weird way, um, because I think that's a way they exert power, um, make you, you feel slightly destabilized. I guess, who knows? Who knows? I think, obviously, I liked my job and I wanted to stay in it. So what would it have cost me? I guess, potentially, I thought at the time, my job, right? Mm-hmm. What about now? Being more generous now, do you think it really would have cost you your job or is that the way they just make you feel? I think possibly it's the way they made me feel at the time. But, you know, I think it's really important to point out, Kara. I mean, there were scores of women that I supported throughout my career, um, you know, who I mentored. I went to bat for them. I mean, I think this has kind of taken an outsized uh, role in the narrative because I was honest about sometimes feeling insecure and territorial, but it certainly doesn't represent the bulk of my career or my relationships with so many women with whom I worked. Do you think this idea of zero-sum game for women in broadcasting is over? You said you didn't possibly, or, or, or do some networks want more gender diversity on camera? I think they absolutely do. I think the viewers are demanding it. The culture is demanding it. So yes, I think things have changed dramatically. And, you know, listen, even the idea of two women as the two main hosts on the Today Show I kind of tried to push as much as I could with the male-female dynamic. You know, when I got the job saying I didn't want to do it if there wasn't a 50-50 division of labor, that was pretty radical back then in 1991 to say, you know, I don't want to be window dressing on this show. I, you know, I covered the Pentagon. I worked in local news. This is who I want to represent when people see these images every morning. So, um, you know, We've come a long way, I think. Well, well, speaking of that 50-50, when you were hired to replace Deborah Norville, you wanted to split the hosting duties 50-50 with Brian Gumbel. Instead, you agreed to splitting 49-51. I don't even understand this. Can you talk a little bit about doing that? I get why you would, but talk about having to settle for 49-51. Yeah, I mean, I think that was uh, sort of a term of art. I think it was saying that every effort would be made to make sure that I was an equal partner. Uh, there were some things that they couldn't really compromise on. Bryant had to open every show. Um, he had to throw to commercial breaks, throw to weather. So I think it was important for him to be, quote unquote, in charge. But the fact that I even got people thinking about this and considering, you know, we're going to make sure some of these tougher interviews and hard news interviews go to Katie and they the automatic default isn't to the male anchor. Right. 
was actually a kind of a big deal. Mm -hmm. Do you, when you think about it, when you're trying to push for that, one of the things you wrote in the book is my smile and the ebullience that came with it had become my defining feature. At a certain point, reporters decided the word for me was perky. The adjective stuck like powdered sugar to a jelly donut. I hated it. I thought it made me sound unserious. That's a narrative that takes hold about you when you're trying to be the serious journalist. Did you think about how, obviously, it dogged you, and at the same time, you were aware of the positive parts of it? Right, right. I mean, I write a lot about that, Kara, about that was sort of a fault line throughout my career. You know, I think if I hadn't been on a morning show, I think that would have been less of a dilemma for me. But I think when you're on a morning show, you are required to have this really interesting mix of being fun and lighthearted, enjoying the cooking segments, dressing up on Halloween, doing all those things, and yet also covering serious news stories. So it was sort of a tight wire. And I think that because I am kind of a playful and sometimes funny person, that that stuff came very naturally to me. The other stuff, though, was another really important side of me. And so I think that, especially for a woman, especially for like a diminutive woman with a big gummy smile and a lot of enthusiasm and, you know, outgoing and friendly, I was always trying to square those two sides of my personality. Did you ever feel you had to move to a different narrative? Well, certainly I had to when I went to CBS. I mean, that was kind of a clear example of I had to show only my serious side. And I think people had become so accustomed to both sides on the Today Show. And perhaps those who didn't watch the Today Show only knew me for the lighter moments. I think that that's one of the reasons I had so much difficulty transitioning to the evening news. All right. So one of the things, obviously, you had to write about was Matt Lauer and cancel culture, mm -hmm. et cetera. When he was accused of sexual misconduct in the workplace and was fired in 2017, talk about what you knew and what you didn't know about what was happening there. Yeah, sure. I think that, you know, there's one thing to know sort of in a nebulous way that someone is kind of a cad, mm -hmm. right? And we had all these euphemisms for people, like they were a player. You know, you got a sense that even though we never discussed it, that Matt had an unhappy marriage and, you know, he liked women, but it, you never kind of knew specifics about that. And I think I was just really surprised, perhaps I shouldn't have been, that this kind of behavior was going on with underlings. You know, it's one thing to be like, oh, she's so hot or talking about a movie star. And it's another thing when you hear someone is really taking advantage of people. And it was just this really kind of lascivious side that I didn't know existed. I mean, I didn't know the extent of this behavior and that it was going on inside the the halls of NBC. So one of the things is a lot of people ask, why didn't you ask that question? Do you think about that when you said it was, your silence was deafening, maybe even incriminating. Maybe I should have contacted these people. Yeah, you know, I think in hindsight, possibly, but you have to kind of consider the culture at the time. There were a lot of extramarital affairs going on uh, that were gossiped about. And, you know, there were, rumors about bosses having relationships with, you know, assistants. And it was all kind of in the ether. 
Um, so I think, could I have sort of gone around and done a survey? Possibly. I mean, could I have been like, what's going on here? You know, maybe, but it was so part and parcel of the culture. And I was in this weird position, and maybe it was wrong for me to think that, that it felt very gossipy. And I never wanted to kind of partake in this gossipy aspect of where I was working. You know what I mean? I kind of, it felt inappropriate. Should I have maybe taken it more seriously and said, hey, you know, to the president of the news division, maybe you shouldn't be doing this? (laughs) Um, Possibly, but that would have been a very difficult position for me to be put in. And were there times where I could have, you know, it, it, that's hard to say. Yeah, you discuss this in the book. One story you did include is how he sent an email to a producer, apparently by mistake, asking her to spread butter on his thighs. Mm-hmm. Or on hers or something. It was just, Her yeah. thighs or whatever. Butter. Yeah. Thighs. Yeah. I remember feeling like, what in the world is going on? Um, and thinking, should I approach this woman who was the intended recipient of that? Or would she be mortified, right? Um, And at the time, I think our understanding of what was a consensual relationship is extremely different than it is now. Um, And and I do say, I I should have approached her and said, is everything okay? Um, But I think at the time, she didn't come to me and I wasn't sure about, you know, was this a consensual encounter and would I embarrass her? Did you say anything to him? I didn't. You didn't? I didn't. I just remember thinking, what? What? And then nothing. And then not calling him. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. So it, you also, in your book, you included a message you sent to Lauer three weeks before the sexual misconduct allegations came out, which in retrospect, wow, I'm amazed you put it in here. Quote, OMG, what the hell did you put in my drink? Phenobarbital. Thanks for being such a good friend. I treasure you. Oi, XO. That that was a joke, correct? He's never been yes, appropriate yes, yes, with you. Yeah. No, right. no, right. no, never, no. never, never. Mm-hmm. I think it was, I think I wrote about that dinner where I felt closer to Matt, um, you know, like where I actually talked to him about things and in a way that I had never really, you know, talked to him. Um, and so I think, I think that was a reflection of like, me allowing myself to be candid, but that was it. No, he was never, ever, ever inappropriate with me, ever. He was always um, very respectful. Um, Yeah, ever. I can say that with complete certainty. Okay. So you wrote also about how great your on-air chemistry was with Matt Lauer, which it absolutely was, Mm -hmm. Um, but you don't speak to him anymore. Do you miss him? Uh. I, you know, listen, I think the whole thing is, is really sad uh, that, that he was really so, um, so callous and so abusive to women he worked with. I feel really disappointed in him. I feel terrible because I think he did a lot of damage uh, to women there are others I reached out to and and they wouldn't talk to me uh, who I suspect might have had this happen to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I probably missed the side of Matt that I thought I knew, 
But with this new information and a clearer, more holistic picture, do I? No. Can I ask you, you know, you and I have talked about this. The morning show is back again. It's on Apple TV+. Plus. It's inspired by morning show wars, and it's it's clearly about you and Matt Lauer. It just is. I don't know how else to say it. I actually like it a lot, and I know you do not. Is that correct or no? I mean, early on, I was saying that I don't think they capture a lot of things. I've never said I don't like it, actually. Um, I think it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's some of it rings true. Uh, I think uh, this sort of duality of how the Matt Lauer character is portrayed, like when he walks into the big celebration in the studio, you know, that seemed very real because I was filling in for Savannah when Matt had his 20th anniversary on the Today Show. And and there was a side of Matt that people really liked, you know, that adoration that was expressed on that day. And then this other kind of side that when he is in Las Vegas with this young woman, that to me, that kind of strange uh, way he seduced her and the confusion that ensued after that encounter and the callousness I saw of him walking past her in the hallway, just kind of like this was just a conquest. And, and, and her, her kind of taking this on her shoulders, I thought that rang very true from everything I learned about what was going on behind the scenes. Right. So I thought they did that very deftly. Um, what about Jennifer Aniston portraying you, really? A version well, of Well, she says she was portraying Diane Sawyer, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> no. No. Maybe an amalgam of the two of you. Yeah, I think it is sort of an amalgam of, of a lot of people. Right. So when you think about what happened to Matt Lauer and others— In this book, you write a lot of things. You talk about attending a frat party in college and UVA where pledges as waiters wearing blackface. Do you worry about, I don't know, this idea of getting canceled? I have lots of various and complex and nuanced thoughts on the issue, but is it something you think about at all? No, not really. I mean, I think I'm very clear-eyed about sort of the, the culture that existed and my role in it and you know, the way we covered news stories back in the early 90s, the way we covered Rodney King, I think we'd be better off if people openly (laughs) talked about these things and the forces that were at work at a given time. You know, I wanted to be honest about the environment I was in. And it's very easy, I think, to look at some of these situations through the lens of 2021. And that's what I kind of tried to do, actually, in the book, saying this was really fucked up. Um, you know, I raised the fact that, that you know, I talk about missing white woman syndrome, but it seems to be much more in the conversation now with the way people covered Gabby Petito and her murder. I talk about asking Matthew Shepard's parents if they were disappointed when they found out he was gay. Yeah, I remember that question, Katie. Katie, I did not like that question. I remember at the time when you asked it, I was like, why is she asking that? Yeah. Like, why? Why is it his fault? Yeah. And then, you know, all the way to covering Me Too and interviewing Jim Obergefell, the plaintiff in the Supreme Court's same-sex marriage case. So, 
You know, I think I am very open and honest about my own shortcomings. And mistakes you've made. Yeah, and blind spots. So one big controversy in the book so far has been around your 2016 interview with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and your disclosure right. in the book that you withheld some information specifically that you admitted her opinion that kneeling during the national anthem showed, quote, a contempt for government that has made it possible for their parents and grandparents to live a decent life, which they probably would not have lived in places they came from. Talk about that. And do you regret withholding info that could be newsmaking? I know you went to two people and they gave you opposite opinions. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really important to make sure that we talk about what I did include, which she said specifically about Colin Kaepernick, that it was dumb and disrespectful and that people who kneeled during the national anthem, while it was within their constitutional rights, it was stupid and arrogant. And um, yes, I do regret it. I do regret it. I was called and told that she misspoke and didn't really understand the question, hadn't been following the, the story, but I wish I had just included all of it. She clarified it later and said she misspoke and her comments were harsh and dismissive. Um, I think that I was... I, I remember thinking, what was she talking about exactly? You know, what did she mean exactly? Um, and I should have asked a follow-up. But I think ultimately, yes, I should have included it and let people, uh, you know, make their own decisions. Or let her clean it up and, herself. Exactly, exactly. I don't think I wrote about that as in-depth as I could have. But I, I was just trying to kind of explain, sometimes we have a dilemma. and you know, maybe I'm the only journalist in America who has ever had this happen <laughs> to them. You know, and I think that, um, yeah, I think I made a mistake there. You said you're a big RBG fan. Yeah. Obviously, Brian Steltzer said he worries the admission hurts the media's reputation. Your response? Um, well, I'm sure Brian Stelter is is pure as the driven snow. <laughs> And he's never given an opinion that is um, reeks of partisanship. How do you respond to people who say this is proof of the, the left-wing media bias they've been complaining about all along? Well, all I know is I've been criticized throughout my career by liberals. Uh, MoveOn.org had a cow when I said that the surge seemed to be working. I was a propagandist for the U.S. military at that point. They got mad that I wasn't tougher on Condi Rice, although I think I asked her some really tough questions. Republicans certainly have criticized me. So I think that you get it from all sides. And when Walter Cronkite took me out to dinner before I went to CBS, he said, I know I'm doing my job when everybody's mad at me. I think it's, I mean, I think this has really been tested in the current landscape in the era of Donald Trump. Um, everybody has picked a side. And you know, is there any media that's considered not one or the other? Is there? I would say possibly the network news shows and, and PBS, probably Judy Woodruff. But it, it's, it's increasingly difficult when people are perpetuating this notion that the election was rigged. And what is it? 60 courts have said that's not true. There was no sort of malfeasance going on in the election um, or that the vaccine doesn't work. I mean, now it is kind of this fact versus fiction. It's not left, right. It's right, wrong. So, you know, if you're pointing out that the election wasn't rigged, you're automatically a member of the liberal media. 
So if you're telling the truth, that's now considered a political statement. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with CNN anchor Jake Tapper, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Katie Couric after the break. Intel is the spark for the dreamers who do. They dream of a life with no diseases, of cleaner, greener, more reliable energy, of advancing and expanding education by bringing AI everywhere. Intel is the spark to start something new, to know that no dream is too daring when you have the right foundation. It starts with Intel. Learn more at intel.com slash starts. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. So I'd love to finish up talking about the future of news then. You obviously worked for Yahoo. You were Yahoo's global news anchor in, until 2017. Mm-hmm. You wanted to make meaningful content. And you uh, you had wrote in the book, the Yahoo folks were counting on me to bring in the big names that drove traffic, particularly Trump, who was the clickiest of clickbait. And I wasn't delivering. Marissa, meanwhile, seemed completely unaware, disengaged. You're talking about Marissa Mayer, who was the CEO at the time. Where do you imagine news going? Yeah, I mean, gosh. You know, I was thinking about the Yahoo stuff. This was before I think algorithms had really, really taken over because this was more about the homepage with desktop computers before everything became mobile. But I'm really worried about it. Uh, I worry about where people are getting their news and information. I worry about algorithms. I worry about misinformation. It's spreading like wildfire. And what do they say? Lies make it around the world before the truth has time to tie its shoelaces or whatever it is. I think we're just going through this massive transformation. I do feel really good about the Washington Post and the New York Times. You know, the Washington Post is considered too liberal. I mean, I know people who who don't trust that. The New York Times, of course. There are people that feel it's gone too far. Uh, so I think we're just in this period of transition that everybody is able to create their own truths, right? Their own silos, their own information bubbles. And because there is so much coming at you. And I think that 
depending on your your predisposition in terms of your hatred for the government or the Democratic Party or whatever it is, it, it just gets, I think, subsumed by, you know, people who agree with you. So how would you redo it then? Um, viewership has been declining for all three major morning shows today, CBS This Morning and Good Morning America. Um, what would you do to fix it? You're talking about the morning shows? Yeah, for example, picking one thing where a lot of people get their information. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very, very tricky because while, you know, I think MSNBC and CNN versus Fox, they pick their audience, right? They are speaking to a certain audience that pretty much holds those points of view. In the morning, I think people are trying to appeal to everyone. So it's very difficult to... I think, cover a lot of the serious stories that are so divisive, right? Because, you know, the the anchors are going to be accused of being one side or the other. And so I think it's tricky because they don't want to lose any more viewers than they're already losing from people going to other places for their news and information. What would you do there? Would it be online? Would it be... I think they they could take a lot more advantage of doing things online. Uh, you, but, but I don't know if it's going to solve polarization or this whole kind of distrust in the media. But in terms of just keeping them vibrant and important, I think I would do a lot more online. But you also don't want to cannibalize the viewers who are turning on the television, right? But I do think that um, you know, I think I've seen a lot more transparency from news organizations like the Washington Post will give bios of their reporters where they worked. And so you kind of know where they're coming from. I think there needs to be more kind of a better sense of the reporters who are sharing that information. But I would definitely emphasize more online material People get up and they turn on their phones, right? They used to get up and turn on their televisions. Phones are never turned off, Katie, just so you know. Yeah, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Yeah. I turn off my phone. Do you? Sometimes, yeah, I try to. You're the only person in America who does, yeah. Yeah, I try to, and I try to get it out of the bedroom. Um, but So you don't have a solution to how you would make I, it? I, I don't. I'd like to ask you, though, what would you do, Kara? I would stop doing them. I don't think people, I think they're a declining asset. I would do them until I, they stop making money. But I don't they're think still they're making a, a lot of money. They are. Um, you know, as, as Make them silly then. Make them silly. I don't. Fragmentation yeah. is, is happening and they're, but they're still sort of one of those places that gets a, gets a big audience as do the evening newscasts, but their audience is getting older and older. Would you ever go back to either of those two things? No, no. I mean, I, I, I was really lucky. I, I, you know, really appreciate the opportunities I had. But no, I don't think so. Sometimes I miss the camaraderie. You know, sometimes I miss being in an organization where you can talk to smart people and run things by them and, and you're trying to figure things out and what should we cover and how, sh- how about looking at this story this way? You know, I love that kind of thing. But I can do that with my team at at my company and say, hey, why don't we do something on the fact that Gabby Petito's getting so much attention? Right. You know, I, so let's I raise cause that. more attention to Gabby Petito by talking about No, 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 no. But no, but let's talk about what's really happening in other corners of the country, right? 
So I, I'm still always reading things and thinking about things and how can we explore them? How can we look at them in a documentary? Um, Would you go back to the internet? Yeah, I think under the corporate sort of masthead that that people are just as powerful as individual brands. You know, you don't really need to work at a place that has a big a masthead or a big bronze number on the on the door. I really do like what I'm doing now. I have a lot of flexibility and the public square has become so vicious that you know, it's it's really hard to have a conversation about anything, I think, without getting slaughtered. So I kind of, I like what I'm doing now. And I think I'm speaking to an audience that's interested in some of the things we're talking about. I love doing podcasts and talking to interesting people. So, you know, I think I'm I'm doing what I'm doing and really liking it. What was your proudest moment in an interview? I wouldn't say Sarah Palin was my proudest moment because I think, as I said, it was sort of hard to watch her struggling, but I thought it was very revelatory, that interview. That was a perfect interview. Why? Because you were not unfair, but you asked exactly, I don't think a lot of people sort of piled on like that you took advantage, you didn't take advantage of her in any way. You know, it was interesting because initially everyone thought it was very fair and then I became sort of like, you know, once again, I'm the liberal media and it was unfair. So so the, the Palin interview? Probably. I think you changed the election. I think I, I informed a certain part of the electorate that probably uh, thought they felt more comfortable with her candidacy than they did afterwards. Yeah. Who would you want to interview today? Marjorie Taylor Greene, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump? Oh, God. Oh, God. I don't know. Zuckerberg? Yeah. Yeah. I would like to interview Zuckerberg. That's a good one. He's not talking to me, so maybe you'll... <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's talking to me either. I think probably I'd, I'd find it interesting to talk to Kamala Harris. Ah. But I don't know how, how honest she would be. What would be your first question? Are they setting you up for failure? What do you think her answer would be? No, Katie. What, what you... No, I, I, you know, I think... It would be, I don't know. I'm trying to think of somebody else who I think would be really interesting. Right now, I think Ted Sarandos would be really interesting. Mm. Ted Sarandos and Dave Chappelle. Together. Maybe together. And Mm. maybe have Roxanne Gay there too. (laughs) She would be fantastic. Um, In your book, you wrote about this duality of yourself. Quote, you're one way or the other. You're either a cute girl who does features or a serious one who covers the Pentagon. You're either Katie or Catherine Have we decided which one you are? You know, I'm comfortable with Katie. I really am. I think Catherine was, you know, a default for not being taken seriously. Mm -hmm. I think I am taken seriously. And so Katie's cool. Okay, then. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Kara. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Blakeney Schick, Matt Kwong, Daphne Chen, and Caitlin O'Keefe. Edited by Naima Raza. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Busta and Mahima Chablani. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcast, so follow this one. 
If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you with a breath mint for less moon best, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.